Section 24 of Life of Sir Walter Raleigh by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 14. The History of the World. Raleigh's discourses about the marriages of the Prince of Wales and the Lady Elizabeth showed with what interest and attention he followed the politics of the day and made himself completely master of them. He seems to have interested himself more in foreign politics than in the religious questions which occupied people's minds at home. Perhaps it was because he did not take up with zeal the side either of the Puritans or the Episcopalians that he was so generally credited with being an unbeliever in religion. In his writings he shows himself a sincerely religious man, but in the state of religious feeling at the time no place was allowed to the tolerant man. Everyone was forced to be a partisan. Raleigh's political knowledge is shown in other tracts besides those about the marriages. One touching a war with Spain is chiefly concerned with his favorite theme, the weakness of the Spanish monarchy. Maxims of State and the Cabinet Council, two treatises on statecraft, are interesting as showing the influence which the study of Machiavelli's writings had had upon him. Though he repeatedly disclaims Machiavelli's conclusions, we cannot fail to see how he had gained an acuteness and political wisdom from the study of the writings of that large-minded political theorist. The Maxims of State is particularly interesting from this point of view, and is full of pithy and pointed sayings. Others of his tracts are concerned with questions relating to the navy and shipbuilding. But Raleigh in prison could hardly follow the course which English politics were taking. Parliament was becoming a very different thing from what he had known it to be in the days of Elizabeth. He had no idea of the hostile feelings with which James and his Parliament regarded one another. In a treatise called A Discourse on the Prerogative of Parliament, published in 1615, he discussed the king's financial proceedings and bade him improve his position by leaving off all his unpopular ways of raising money and casting himself upon the love of his subjects. James could not stand criticism of his government. It is true that Raleigh threw all the blame upon the evil counsellors whom he thought had misled the king, but James knew, if Raleigh did not, how entirely all that had happened was his own doing. If Raleigh had better understood the position of affairs, he would never have hoped to gain favour by sending this treatise to the king. Writing political tracts, however, was not Raleigh's main occupation in the Tower. He had thrown himself heart and soul into study, and had conceived the ambitious design of writing a history of the world. He had grasped the idea of the unity of history and wished to write a history of his own country, thought that it could not be rightly comprehended unless it was prefaced by a history of the whole world. Men were beginning at this time really to interest themselves in historical study. The early chroniclers had contented themselves with repeating the facts of early history as others had told them before, without any attempt at arrangement or criticism, and had then passed on to tell the events which had happened in their own lifetime. A change was now beginning, and England possessed a few real and careful students of history, who, following the example of learned men on the continent, 
were trying to master their subject and produce thoughtful and accurate works chief among these was william camden who passed his life first as second master and afterwards as headmaster of westminster school he was a real scholar and student and the fame of his learning reached the continent and brought him into connection with foreign scholars in sixteen forty he published his first great work the reliquiae britannicae in which he described the countries of england ireland and scotland respect for his learning and the purity of his life made burleigh fix upon him as the man most fitted to write an account of the reign of elizabeth he gave him for this purpose a large number of state papers and eighteen years afterwards in 1615 camden published his annals of england during the reign of elizabeth the book was written in latin but was translated soon after it is written with as much impartiality as can be expected from a historian of his own times and is a valuable contribution to our knowledge of those days students were also beginning to interest themselves in the history of other countries besides their own in 1610 a general history of the turks appeared by richard knowles who had been a fellow of lincoln college oxford he wrote in english with spirit and vigour and told the story of the growth of the turkish empire from the first appearance of the turks in europe down to his own times all over europe the enthusiasm for study for learning for its own sake was advancing men like isaac casaubon in france and the scaliger in belgium devoted themselves to the study of classical authors with a view of obtaining correct texts in england scholars like sir robert cotton were busy collecting literary materials which had been scattered by the dissolution of the monasteries that others might make use of them in sixteen o two sir thomas bodley had conferred an inestimable boon upon students by the foundation in oxford of that great library which has since been known by his name amongst the questions which men then studied there were many that seemed to us absurd and worthless they busied themselves with points of rabbinical lore with the exact position of the garden of eden with the wanderings of cain with discussions as to the spot on which the ark rested long dissertations on points such as these tend to make the first portions of raleigh's history of the world wearisome reading the story advances so slowly the questions discussed are so entirely wanting in interest to the modern reader that neither beauty of style nor the presence here and there of deep and thoughtful sayings can make it attractive reading raleigh was aided particularly in the scriptural parts of his history by other learned men he was in continual intercourse with the scholars of his time chief amongst those who helped him was one robert burrell a learned clergyman we also find him writing to sir robert cotton for the loan of books and manuscripts to us the interest of the book does not rest upon this kind of learning though it is another sign of the wonderful many-sidedness of raleigh that he who shone so in active life as soldier sailor and statesman should have been able when in prison to throw himself into study of this occult kind it was late in life for him to undertake a work on so large a scale and it is no wonder that the book was never finished the six volumes which exist only bring the history down to b c one seventy raleigh himself was well aware how hopeless a task he was undertaking and states in his preface his deep feeling of his own unworthiness for it 
but he says those inmost and soul-piercing wounds which are ever aching while uncured with a desire to satisfy those few friends which i have tried by the fire of adversity the former enforcing the latter persuading have caused me to make my thoughts legible and myself the subject of every opinion wise or weak in raleigh's eyes the great advantage of the study of history was the moral instruction which might be got from it in a word he says we may gather out of history a policy no less wise than eternal by the comparison and application of other men's forepast miseries with our own like errors and ill deservings it is true that in this way much may be learnt from the study of history but it is the part of the moral teacher rather than of the historian to point out these lessons raleigh confuses the two functions and is too much of a preacher to be a historian it is not from a historical but from a literary point of view that we must judge his book it holds a foremost place among the english prose writings of the time till the days of elizabeth all learned books had been written in latin and since the days of wycliffe there had been no great prose writer but with the revival of poetry prose began to revive also at first it was elaborate and artificial a style both of speaking and writing came into vogue by which men seemed to strive to conceal their meaning by the fanciful language in which they clothed it this affectation was called euphuism after the novel euphues by john lyley which is one of the chief though not one of the worst examples of this style sir philip sidney did not escape the general taint his pastoral romance called the arcadia is for the most part written in a fanciful and affected manner but is at the same time full of true poetical feeling in his defence of poesy he shows himself master of a purer and freer style this essay is the most remarkable prose writing of the elizabethan age it is the beginning of literary criticism it is graceful and easy full of witty and pointed sayings and shows a remarkable advance on anything that had gone before then followed hooker with the ecclesiastical polity the first books of which were published in fifteen ninety four he shows how the english language may be used for purposes of argument and scholarly reasoning and his style is forcible and unaffected rising at times into nervous eloquence but no work shows so well the advance both in learning and in prose writing as the english bible the work of translating the bible was begun in 1607 and was finished in 1611 it was the labor of 47 men who divided themselves into six companies and met at oxford cambridge and westminster the work of each person was submitted to the rest for criticism such high excellence of style combining perfect simplicity and true poetry with rare vigour and dignity exists in no other english book and as the bible was in every one's hands it produced an effect upon both the spoken and written language which no other book could have done it was in sixteen fourteen that raleigh published his history of the world as has been said it is to its literary merits that the book owes its main value the language is pure and dignified the sentences may sometimes struck us as long and cumbersome but they are in the main easy and flowing they impress the ear with a feeling of completeness occasionally he rises to real eloquence especially when describing battles 
his account of the punic war is one of the most striking parts of the book it is when he is dealing with men in their doings that he is at his best it is then that we seem to see raleigh's real character much more than when he indulges in philosophical speculations to illustrate events in the history of the bygone world he makes digressions about things which happened in his own time and these being often the accounts of personal experiences are of great interest from the light which they throw upon the character of their writer and of his doings they make us regret very much that he was not able to bring down his history to his own times no man could have written a more stirring account of the great events in which he had taken part raleigh had hoped that his book might win him favour with james i but this hope showed how little he understood james's views about the dignity of kings in his preface raleigh spoke of the different english kings and traced the misfortunes of many of them to their own evil doings above all he spoke severely of henry the eighth james thought that a king was above criticism and that any one should presume to find fault with his own ancestor was unpardonable presumption when asked why he did not like raleigh's history he replied it is too saucy in censuring the acts of princes other men judged differently a greater man than james oliver cromwell writing to his son richard in sixteen fifty says recreate yourself with sir walter raleigh's history it is a body of history and will add much more to your understanding than fragments of story in the century after the first appearance of this book eleven editions of it were sold so great was its popularity but raleigh never published any more though he seems to have been far on in his preparation of other portions other things came in to occupy his attention and to turn his mind once more to the business of active life distress at the death of prince henry is also said to have left him without courage to resume his writing raleigh's literary labours brought him into connection not only with the learned men of his day but also with men of letters besides being a scholar he was also a poet and as such seems to have been on intimate terms with the great poets and dramatists of those times he is said to have founded a club in a tavern called the mermaid by cheapside at which shakespeare ben jonson beaumont fletcher and others met and made merry raleigh kept up his intimacy with ben jonson while he was in prison jonson is said to have aided raleigh in his history and to have gone abroad as tutor with raleigh's eldest son the existence of raleigh's club at the mermaid as well as the fact of ben jonson's journey with his son are only traditions but they have as traditions this value that the very fact of their existence proves the intimacy which existed between raleigh and the playwriters raleigh himself was a poet and those poems of his that remain are again a proof of the fullness and many-sidedness of his active nature his poems for the most part appeared in two collections of english poetry one of which called england's helicon was published in sixteen hundred and the other davidson's rhapsody in sixteen o two they are mostly amorous and pastoral lays and sonnets of the kind that were common in those days one of a very different kind called the lie is a bitter and powerful satire upon the existing state of things in it he exclaims against the powers that ruled in england at that time go tell the court it glows and shines like rotten wood 
go tell the church it shows what's good but does no good if court and church reply give court and church the lie tell potentates they live acting by others actions not loved unless they give not strong but by their factions if potentates reply give potentates the lie End of section 24